Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Yes, I vote because I feel like as an African-American female, like I want my voice to be heard. Um, Conservative values. So I vote very conservative. So I try to vote for candidates that have very conservative viewpoints. Oh, I don't vote anymore now. Um, Just because I don't. um. I vote because it is our right to vote, and I take it seriously. This is San Diego Decides, a podcast by Voice of San Diego. I'm Sarah Libby, and I'm here with my pal, Rai Rivard. Hey, Sarah Libby. Hi, Rivard. What's up? What's up, Sarah Libby? It's been a while, man. I mean, not for us personally, but on the podcast. Yeah. We're back. We're back. So it's after Labor Day, which means things are starting to kick into gear a little bit. Um, Let's talk about something that you hear a lot about and maybe pay attention to, don't pay attention to. Freak out about. Freak out about. Don't know what to make of. Talking about polling. Polls. Polls. Surveys. Opinion surveys. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to kind of kick this off with one of my favorite moments from the presidential campaign so far because um, polls became a weird uh, touchstone in it. And it was just like a really hilarious moment. Let's listen to this. This is between um, a CNN anchor uh, and a spokesman for Donald Trump's campaign. And it gets um, gets a little testy. All right. Well, let me ask you about this. So you say you say it's not a shakeup, but you guys are down. <laughs> And it makes Says sense who? that there would Says polls, who? most of them, all of them. Says who? Polls. I just told you, I answered your question. Okay. Which polls? All of them. Okay. And your okay. question is? It's brutal, man. <laughs> um, I mean, part of the reason that that went viral is because it's just like a good, a, a good smackdown. Um, But it also kind of hits at this thing where, like, polls are treated as kind of sacrosanct sometimes. as like, well, the polls say you're down, so you must be down. And it's really not that simple. We shared this uh, tweet. This was, like, teed up just for us, like a delicious little gift from David Axelrod. Um, He tweeted this right before we came in here to record this podcast, so I feel like it was fate. Um, And he said... Polls are so numerous at this point that results vary greatly and everyone can find one they like, yet all are covered as if they're right. And David Axelrod, the political strategist for President Obama, um, got him elected, some say. So let's talk about what goes into a poll. There's what it says, you know, Rye Rivard is up by 10 points. Um, There's who conducted the poll or who paid for the poll, what firm uh, carried it out and who paid them or didn't pay them. Um, and then there's, you know, the questions that go into it. How did they ask uh, questions that determine that Rye Rivard was up? 
Um, and who did they ask? So there's a lot that goes into it, and every poll is different. And like our friend David Oxerod said, a lot of them show a lot of different results. So let's kind of just walk through whatever we can think of um, that folks could look for when they are trying to study. You know, like when you read a story, you're going to weigh it differently if it came from a certain reporter, um, if it ran in the Wall Street Journal, or, or if it ran on a blog you've never heard of, you know, if you read the headline and then you determine that, oh, actually the content of the story doesn't match this headline at all. You know, you have all these different gauges um, and filters that you kind of run through in your mind to determine if something is valid or if you believe it. Um, and I feel like people are less familiar with what those are when they're reading a poll. They just kind of believe, oh, this seven points, that's a lot. Everything's going badly for this person. And it's it, there's a, a couple different audiences for a lot of polls. Like some polls will come out and they're meant to, uh, you know, get the general public to think something is happening. Like, oh, you know, Hillary Clinton is up or Donald Trump is down or vice versa. Uh, and then, you know, you see that on television and you sort of have a takeaway from that. But then there's sort of the political journalist, um, political operative audience who then you know, really parses those. And then like, like Axelrod was suggesting, you, you just fight over what the poll is. You fight over the sample size. You fight over, did you have the right number of Democrats or Republicans in it? And that alone is a really big um, uh, point of debate in polling because you can look at voter registration and you can have, you know, the percentage of Republicans and the percentage of Democrats and the percentage of independents that are registered. Or you could do a, lot, a little bit fancier stuff, which is really the way you want to do it, which is, to sort of take turnout from previous years, which is, you know, the percentage of people that are registered that actually tend to show up. And then you think about things like, um, you know, is there a, a, you know, something on the ballot um, that's more likely to prompt Democrats to, to show up or Republicans to show up? And, and actually, you know, sometimes ballot measures in some states um, will be targeted to get certain constituents out, like, you know, uh, social issues, you know, things like... Um, Prop 8. Yeah, Prop 8 it was designed to turn out uh, Republicans um, or conservatives in California. Absolutely. So let's kind of run through some of the things you and I are experts, let's say. We're semi-experts. What are some things that if you see on a poll just automatically kind of put your guard up? Um, I'm going to throw out uh, registered voters and likely voters. Um, if you see a poll and it includes people who aren't even registered to vote, um, let alone people who are considered likely to vote, and there's a lot of calculations that go into how they determine if someone is likely to vote, um, but that's going to throw things off right there if, if it includes people who aren't even registered to vote. So that's something that you can look at. What else is there? You know, a big thing is if you can see the entire poll um, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about a little later, we have the, the old cross tabs, the old cross tabs, as they're called. Um, you know, we're talking, uh, we're going to talk to, to John Needstat, uh, the owner of competitive edge research a little later in the show, um, about, about how he polls. Um, but one of the things that campaigns will do is they release, uh, you know, internal polls, they say. Um, but often what they're doing is just releasing what's called the top line number, which is how their candidate compares to another candidate. And not only will they only release that if their candidate's up, but they often won't release the rest of the poll. And so you don't know what they've asked. You don't know what other things they've asked. You don't know if they've asked leading questions before they ask, who would you vote for? Um, so if you can't see the entire poll, that's a huge red flag. Right. Um, 
So you mentioned one thing, you know, whether a campaign paid for a poll, that's something that as a journalist, I look at and see, okay, so I need to view this through that lens. They obviously want me to see these results and they're pushing, you know, that message. Um, How many people were polled, you know, a really small sample size. We asked 30 people is probably not very representative um, of anything. A really big margin of error is something to look for. So if it says, you know, um, these candidates are two points apart, you know, this candidate's leading by two points and the margin of error is seven points. That means one could really, there's, it means nothing. So that's something. Another thing um, that I've always been taught to look out for is whether they included cell phones. If it's, you know, a a call where you're calling folks on the phone um, and we can talk a little bit about more about uh, the various types of polls that exist now. You, it used to always be by phone, and now actually, um, even before that, it was people would walk to people's houses. Yeah, pollsters would sit down in your living room or your kitchen and interview until basically enough people had a telephone to. I would to, die to have a pollster come to my house. I would love it. Well, every ten years, there's a census. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sort of poll. So they used to only primarily be conducted by phone, and you wanted to look at whether. Um, They included landlines and cell phones because, you know, if you include landlines, you're going to get a lot of probably older people, whereas younger people um, have exclusively cell phones. And if you don't include cell phones, you're leaving out all these potential, you know, young voters. So that's one thing. Whether or not, especially in California, whether they include Spanish language as an option. And then another thing that I didn't even think of um, that I learned from 538 polling experts extraordinaire is... um, whether it was conducted by a live interviewer. Mm -hmm. So I guess a lot of research has shown that that tends to produce better results as opposed to like a, a robo person. One of the, one of the big robo non person, one of the big polling firms in the country that you'll see a lot of their results, uh, public policy polling PPP. They, uh, as far as I know, only do automated surveys and, and every, uh, every now and then when they put out a poll, people, you know, sort of trash it. Although actually, you know, if you look at, they're not terrible, but, um, uh, people just say this isn't the, the sort of gold standard of how you poll people cause it's automated. Yeah, the thing that I always associate with PPP is really weird questions. So you'll see a poll that they conducted and it'll be like, Barack Obama is up by five points and also 99% of Americans believe that baseball is America's pastime. I don't, there's like a lot of weird baseball questions or just like really random stuff thrown in there that um, people seem to gravitate toward. And another thing, uh, when you're not talking about candidate polling, but about issue polling, um, particularly on uh, polls uh, I've learned about the environment, um, where people say, you know, we really want to do something about climate change. We really care about about this issue. You'll see polls that they say, you know, this percent want, you know, like clean water and like clean air. But they're often not uh, – talking about the intensity of that desire versus other things. Like if you had thrown in a poll by say an environmental group that's polling about, do you want clean water and clean air? People say, yeah. But if you say, do you want that potentially at the expense of jobs in your community? People would be less inclined uh, to say yes. Um, So you have to be careful about on, particularly on issue polling when people say, everybody agrees this thing is good. Um, Not only what have they tested that against the trade-offs, but, whether people care that much about that issue versus all the other issues that they might be considering 
Um, you know, you might have a candidate who's very pro-environment, and you might say there's a lot of people that care about the environment, but if the other candidate, if that candidate's opponent um, has some other issues that are a little hotter, the, the, the polling just doesn't mean anything. Yeah, and it also... Um something that comes into play is how well they understand something. Kind of the trope that you always hear is um, Obamacare polls really badly, but then when you explain to people individual components, do, do you think people should stay on their parents' insurance until age 26? Well, yes, of course, and that polls magnificently. And so that's something else to take into consideration when it comes to the questions and the wording. So I want to talk about two recent surveys that um, I came across that are both California-based surveys. Um, I was going through my email um, and and saw the old Cal Speaks poll, which uh, is conducted by Sacramento State and um, in partnership with a lot of the public radio stations. So KPPC, KPCC and KPBS, I think, was involved. And there are a couple interesting things that I took away from this. One, this was an online survey, which when I was coming up as a journalist covering campaigns, like I always was taught they're garbage. It's like no one would take that seriously. And and both of the polls that I want to talk about are both online only polls. So that kind of blew my mind, just that alone right there. Um, and then I pulled out one question that I think gets to this wording issue that I thought was hilarious. Um, so this is from their press release kind of touting some of the results and synthesizing them. Uh, Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump receives the lowest rating of any candidate or group on a feeling thermometer. 71% give him a, a negative wh- or a, what? a feeling thermometer. Okay. Certainly you're familiar. <laughs> I am not. 71% give him a negative or cold rating while 17% of Californians have warm feelings toward the Republican nominee. Like, what does that even mean? I don't know. Because I can imagine, you know, having lukewarm feelings for somebody and still voting for them. And I can imagine having warm feelings for somebody and thinking, but I'm still going to vote for this other person because my feelings are warmer for them. Um, So, you know, there are certain ways to phrase questions or to ask things that are just can be actively unhelpful. Like who would you want to have a beer with? Exactly. Um, You know, I think George Bush wins that in a landslide, but that doesn't necessarily mean I want to vote for him. He's also sober. He's been sober for many years, so he doesn't even drink beer. You have to have a Diet Coke. That's that's his move. Mm -hmm. It's a good move. Diet Coke's delish. Um, So the other... um, poll that came out um, in the last week or two was the USC LA Times poll. They um, have had this partnership for for several years. Um, And like I said, my mind was blown that this was an online poll. And not only an online poll, but an online poll conducted by SurveyMonkey. And I just associate that with like, you know, your friend's are having a birthday party for Heather and they want to know what day works best for everyone. And so they sent out this survey monkey, but this is like a legitimate national poll from the greatest university in the history of the earth, USC and, (laughs) and the LA times and it's all online. So I called Dan Schner who is the director of the Unruh Institute um, at USC and who conducted this poll and was like, what, Tell me about online polling, because apparently it's real now. And what did he say? Is it real? It's real. So he said that they've been... 
playing around with online polls since 2012 and that at that point the LA Times was still nervous about it and didn't want to partner um, on any online polls at that point. But if you remember back in 2012, um, there was a big congressional race in the LA area between Berman and Sherman. (laughs) So they kind of tested the waters with that and he said that it ended up being relatively accurate and they've been refining their online polling ever since until it's gotten to the point where they're obviously comfortable enough, you know, using it. Um, So there are a few considerations that he talked to me about that I found really fascinating. And one is this issue, you know, like I said, there's the issue of cell phones versus landlines and who has access to what and who you're most likely to reach. And with online polls, you have to consider um, people who don't have access to the internet or people who don't have regular access to the internet because there's a difference there. Um, And so I think that's something that they, you know, try to wait to account for. And then you know, all of these polls have different methodologies, but but one thing he said, and this goes for all polling, I asked him, if you're a voter, what do you look for in a poll to understand if it's legitimate? And he said, you know, I wouldn't look at a poll and say Hillary Clinton is up by two points and take that to mean Hillary Clinton is up by two points, which is pretty surprising. He said, I would look at a poll that says Hillary Clinton's up by two points and look at that same poll and how what it has done over time. And so if Hillary Clinton's up by two points, but, you know, six weeks ago that same poll said that they were in a dead heat and they were tied, that that means she's on an upward trajectory and she has momentum, and that's something that you can probably bank on. Whereas, you know, like that Axelrod quote, this poll says this, this poll says this, and they're all taken as right. But if you look at the same poll, the same methodology, roughly probably the same groups of people being questioned, that that's something that is more reliable. Yeah. One of the people that taught me about polling early in my career was big on trend lines. He said, just look at the trend line, just pay attention to the trend line. And then he repeated that to me every time I called him, just look at the trend line. (laughs) Did you look? I always looked at the trend. Where are you looking? If I could fit that many pieces of paper on my desk, I would look at the trend line. And then there's another kind of a poll that's really not much of a poll at all, but it appears as if it might be a poll. It's called a push poll. And this is really uh, just basically slander in question form. Uh, I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, some of the the more um, uh, dark artists in the political world (laughs) will use these and they'll call up and they'll, uh, you know, since this has been in the news lately, they'll, they'll ask something like, would you vote for Hillary Clinton if you knew she'd been replaced by a body double? Um, or, you know, uh, this has happened, like, would you vote for this candidate if you knew that their uh, campaign had been infiltrated by lesbians? That was used against uh, Ann Richards in Texas uh, many years ago. So actually, you know, if you ever uh, get one poll like that, uh, get a call like that, you should actually call us here at Voice of San Diego and let us know. I want to be the person who gets all of these things. I want a pollster to come knock on my door. I want them to call me and I want them to send me just like some weird insidious poll with heinous characterizations of everyone involved. Who are these lucky people who get these? Um, so push polls remind me of another poll. You can't see me using air quotes. Poll that we kind of laugh about a lot in the newsroom. And these are like online polls and Twitter polls. And I see a lot of journalists or newsrooms kind of doing these either on their website or through their Twitter accounts. And like I said, we kind of roll our eyes a lot um, in the newsroom when we see these. Like, And 
I feel like those questions, maybe not as insidious as a push poll, but a lot of those, I'm just like, who is writing these? Um, like, would you vote for Hillary Clinton if you knew she was about to die is kind of thing. So there's, um, there's a couple of different, uh, like sort of variations of this. There's like the Twitter polls that are done sort of earnestly, but misguidedly to actually try and gauge public opinion uh, or try to gauge public opinion. Cause you're not really going to get that. It's going to be a sample bias of people who happen to be on Twitter and then follow you, which is a huge sample bias, um, which means, you know, it's just skewed. It has nothing. It's not representative right. of the general population at all. Um, and then there are sort of the ironic Twitter polls. Um, and then there's, there's a sort of, earnest attempt, particularly on newspaper, online polls where they put it on their homepage um, to, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's more fun than anything else. Yeah. And it can be engaging and I understand it, but I guess sort of what angers me as a journalist is it's a bit of like a way to sort of act like you covered a serious or complex issue while doing literally the bare minimum. So if you take you know, something controversial like police shootings or any of the police issues that have been in the news and you just do an online poll, you can kind of like act like you covered it or act like you care about having a dialogue on something that's really important when that dialogue is kind of meaningless. And um, and they don't always uh, clearly label them as this is just for fun and games. Right. Um, when... Uh, again, huge sample bias. It's people who read your newspaper or website who feel like clicking on the thing who may be voting more than once and are good friends. And who have access to the internet. Yeah. And our good friends at the Union Tribune, they do this. And they ask some some riveting cl- questions. Like, they actually did ask this question back in, back in August. Whose health are you more concerned about? Um, 365 people responded. 60% said Clinton. 18% said Trump. 21% said neither. Um, and then they ask, you know, like sort of less serious questions like, you know, will Joey Bosa actually play a game ever? Um, and like how many games will the Chargers win this season? And uh, the most, actually, the the most uh, <laughs> respondents they got lately was, which do you think is more important to San Diego Comic-Con or the Chargers? And, you know, again, fun and games here, but uh, Comic-Con Comic-Con one. Yeah. Right. But even that, it just like suggests that they're, it's one or the other, that they're in competition somehow, which can be kind of misleading. Right. And if it's near Comic-Con or at the start of the Charger season, like they're just, they're just not real, but um, there they are. But if they get people to read stories that journalists write, I'm into that. But now we're going to talk to a real pollster. John Neenstead, the president of Competitive Edge, uh, a local polling and market research firm. So, John, one thing, you know, we talk a lot about statewide polls and national polls. One thing I'm curious to hear from from you is how San Diego is unique and whether it poses any unique challenges in terms of polling. Are there things that you do that you think that other pollsters don't do or do differently? You know, do you have to ask all your questions in Spanish and English? Or or what are kind of like the interesting things that San Diego offers as far as opportunities or hurdles to polling and taking people's temperatures? Well, first of all, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, San Diego is um, somewhat 
uh, different. I wouldn't say unique. Um, all big cities are more difficult to do survey research in than, say, rural towns or even smaller cities. People here are busier, so it's more, diff more difficult to get a hold of them. And because they're busier, their time is a little bit more compressed. And so doing a 15-minute survey with them over the phone uh, is a little bit more daunting than, say, doing a survey in El Centro or um, rural Kentucky or Ohio, that sort of thing. So that's a, a, a challenge. But you also face that challenge in Los Angeles, New York City, when we poll there. We poll across the country. We're a 30-year-old, 29-year-old firm that, that polls all across the country on a variety of issues. Yes, we do a lot of politics, but we also do some consumer research. We do some public affairs research. So it's a pretty broad breadth, breadth of uh, work that we do. The question about the Spanish language, uh, we do have a bilingual crew of interviewers when we need it, but typically from a standpoint of polling the electorate, um, because all voters must be naturalized citizens um, at, at a minimum and are almost all, are mostly uh, non-naturalized citizens, uh, people that grew up here. As a matter of fact, uh, about 12% of the voters in San Diego County are naturalized citizens. Um, because the vast majority speak English, I think uh, maybe two or three percent speak uh, so much Spanish that they want to do a survey in Spanish. We don't usually have to worry too much about the Spanish language element of of the survey research game. Got it. So, say I'm a candidate in San Diego who comes to you. Uh, can you just walk me through what the process is like? Obviously, I want to know if I have a chance to win. Um, but are people usually just as interested in, in issues and whether that impacts their candidacy or just how does that all work when somebody comes to you? Sure, Sarah. Usually the people that come to me are not the candidates themselves. They're the consultants for the candidates. Um, a wise candidate has in candidate serious usually is hired a consultant they i make my relationships as from a business standpoint with the consultants not so much with the candidates that said uh, i have a lot of great relationships with the candidates but they usually come after i've met the consultant and then i develop a relationship with the candidate and i love those sorts of situations i feel very invested in the more helpful i can be in a situation like that where i have a personal relationship with the candidate the better um, they are going to want to know how to win and the consultant is going to want to know how to win as efficiently as possible. My job is to, for, with evidence based upon the survey data that we collect, um, do that. Give them advice on how to win. It's as simple as that and as complex as that. So think of all the things that go into winning. Understanding what people think about the issues. Understanding how they make up their minds. Understanding where they get their information, understanding what messages and uh, themes they are that are on their mind, uh, those sorts of things, what people they respect, what people they find credible as endorsers, um, those are also very important elements to, uh, to winning. But the basic fun foundation is to understand why things are the way they are. A media pollster is not so concerned with understanding why the things are the way they are. They are more interested in the horse race. So when you look at Politico and you see the um, real clear politics sort of um, uh, view of, of the, an election, you're looking at a horse race. To my mind, that's almost akin to a parlor trick in my business. It's just there. It's kind of interesting to look at. But what really matters for a campaign pollster um, or anybody involved in even public affairs polling is to understand why things are the way they are, the underlying dynamic of the electorate. So something that 
I feel like I've always been taught as a political journalist is, you know, we get during campaign season, all, all kinds of things thrown our way. Here's this oppo research I want you to publish to make this candidate look bad. And, and one of the lessons that you always learn is internal polls from candidates are bad. And you don't want to publish a story that says, Kevin Faulkner is up by 50 points, according to an internal poll conducted by Kevin Faulkner. But you're probably somebody who has conducted some of those internal polls. So what's your reaction to that? And is that, you know, crap? Or is there a reason for that? The only reason internal polls should be um, should be thought of as lesser would be just because the campaign is not going to want you to publish an internal poll that doesn't fit their narrative. The internal poll should be done correctly. Um But uh, And the media poll should also be done correctly. But the media poll – the reason the media poll isn't hmm, quite as valuable is they're, again, not looking for the why. And the why is the real story that you want to get into, which the internal poll is really going to be focused on. A good internal poll is going to not only get the horse race correct, but it's also going to understand why things are the way they are. So they're both valuable – they should be both valuable in their own way, but a reporter is only going to get from that – Inter, inter, internal source on that internal poll, the one that the campaign wants uh, wants you to see. Right. So it's not necessarily that the poll itself is bad or was done badly or is inaccurate. It's just that, you know, you're just kind of carrying their water for them as a journalist, which is inappropriate. Yeah. In a prior job, uh, the internal polls that I was sent mostly weren't the whole poll. It was sort of the top line number that made the candidate look best. Um, and obviously when the polling was making the candidate look good, you didn't get the, you know, message testing and all this stuff in the, in the rest of the poll, except very rarely. Um, is there a, do you talk to the consultants about, yeah, throw this thing out there that would make us look good? Or do you say, don't ever release my stuff? That wouldn't be, I mean, who makes that decision to float it out? Well, the candidate or the campaign, it's their poll. They can do what they want with it. But my my relationship with my clients is if you put something out there and the press calls me on it, I'm not – I have to talk about it, right? So be very judicious with what you uh, put out there. Um, I'm not going to allow Competitive Edge's name to be associated with something that is sleazy or cheesy or anything like that because that's not what we do. We're, uh, again, a 29-year-old firm that prides itself on having a developed a, a great reputation here locally and across the country. So uh, my clients are aware of that. So it's pretty uh, – it's not all that often that we uh, – that, that the clients I work with are putting out uh, – Public for public consumption, the uh, the results of our polls. Can you talk at all about what goes into how you formulate questions, and particularly what goes into the wording of questions? Because you know this is something we run into as journalists all the time. There's twenty different ways to say the same thing, um, and you know it has the potential to skew people's answers pretty considerably, depending on how you ask. A certain question. So, what? How does that process work? Yeah, exactly right. Um, some of the changes, even subtle changes, could produce uh, significant differences in the results. Um, some of them are done innocuously, or because maybe just pure shoddiness, and others are done from a, uh, questions are changed, or uh, wording is changed or used for reasons that 
the uh, consultant or the somebody wants to change public opinion because they release the data based upon the the resp- results that they got from that worded question. I'm going to use, if I can, uh, something that's already been out there. The Chargers released a poll poll results from a survey they did. This is way back in 2015, and there's question about the uh, stadium and a stadium proposal was do you a favor do you favor or oppose the city and the county spending 400 million dollars to build a new NFL football stadium in the Mission Valley area of San Diego. Now that got a 61% oppose response at the time and 33% favor uh, at the time. Well, I pointed out that when this was touted to me it says well the the question itself if you read it carefully uh, what is a respondent supposed to say? Because you're putting the emphasis on the city and county spending $400 million. That's what you're responding to. You're not responding to a package or a proposition or an initiative. You're responding to whether they should spend that money. The default is going to be no. Contrast that with the question that we asked around the same time, and we put it in the form of a proposition that might appear on the ballot. We said Proposition 1 may appear on the ballot. It approves building a roughly $1 billion modern football stadium, which the city and county would own on the Qualcomm Stadium site. About two-thirds of the cost would be paid by the NFL, the Chargers, and corporate sponsors. About one-third of the cost would be paid by city and county government. If the election were held today, would you vote yes to approve Proposition 1 or no to reject it? Now, that's replicating what could appear here on the ballot. The first one that the chargers were asking doesn't come close to replicating what would appear on the ballot. So when you think about how to ask a question, you want it to be as um, real world as possible. Otherwise, you're going to start distorting what public opinion is. One of the words that's always uh, intrigued me that's impulse is when they ask if you want to reform something. And reform is one of those words that it, it just it could mean so many different things to so many different people. Do you ever try and avoid certain words that are obviously open to interpretation? Well, you know, I guess everything could be open to interpretation. Um, I try and look at it from the standpoint of what are we really trying to understand that's actually out there in the public? The more we get away from that, the more we inject certain words into the question, the less we're going to, the more we're going to change what public opinion really is. And the desire I always have is to understand public opinion as, as it is. That's what we really want to do. Now, we also do message testing. So in that situation, yeah, you're going to test a a message in the vernacular of whatever it is that we're trying to look at, whatever issue we're, we're trying to look at. And there, there's more license. But in that situation, you're then trying to understand how that message plays. It's a different concept than actually asking the question about what public opinion is now, currently. Can you give us a, a message that you might test? Uh, I don't know. Um, supporters say uh, Mayor Faulkner's a great mayor because he uh, – paves roads and is looking out for the citizens of San Diego. Is that a good reason to vote for him? Somewhat good reason, strongly good reason, that sort of thing. So you've been doing this a long time um, in a lot of different races. Rye had the question. I'm going to ask it. I'm taking credit for Rye. What's the farthest off you've ever, ever been? And can you talk about why you think that happened or just we kind of want to hear some horror stories? Oh, come on. <laughs> and then you can go with your most accurate and spot on. Yeah, how about we start with the, that? The time you were perfect, yeah. <laughs> which is always except for this one story that you're going to tell us. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I've got a lot of stories. One thing that I'm extremely proud of is that we've called the winner in every mayor's race uh, in San Diego since 1992. Obviously, I'm a native San Diego, so we do a lot of work here. Um, so uh, that's really, uh, I think, I, I love the fact that we've been involved in those that many mayor's, mayoral races and, and have been so accurate. Um, I, uh, another story on the positive side, I'll get to a negative, but let me tell you a positive uh, or in, kind of a, a, a situation that taught me a lot. So Back in um, the early 90s, um, there was a city council race in District 8, and there were a number of candidates, a lot of candidates running, um, one of whom was somebody nobody had ever heard of was Juan Vargas. And um, Mike Geary was in that race. Another fairly high-profile people were in that race. And uh, I happened – we said, okay, we're going to do a survey here. It wasn't for anybody, any candidate. This was uh, for – the daily transcript, actually, and we said, we'd do the survey and um, and put it out there. And as we were doing the survey, I w- had to go to New York for business. And I'm in New York. It's February. It's cold. And I get the kind of early results. And it shows this Juan Vargas guy in the lead. And I'm like, well, that can't be right, guys. You know, back home, that can't be right. You know, uh, get another hundred surveys. <laughs> so um, they dutifully went in the field and got another hundred surveys, and this turned out the same thing was was uh, happened in the the second version. You know, the extra hundred surveys. So um, I, I, we published it, and two weeks later, Juan Vargas won um, the race, and of course, I took credit for it. Oh, I knew it all along, sort of thing. But the point being that you have to, if you do the poll correctly, if you conduct it correctly and you use the right methods, you design the questionnaire correctly, you sample correctly, you analyze it correctly, um, everybody, everything's done right, you got to believe in your polling numbers. You have to do that. Um, I've learned that over the, time and time again, that trust the numbers that you've got. Okay, so you asked for a, a negative. I was going to say, that can't be your horror story. You just did the thing like in a job interview where I ask you for your negative qualities and you're like, oh, I'm a perfectionist. I'm always on time. It's a real problem. I work too hard. If <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, negative. Um, there have been some occasions where uh, I learn from the outcome so let's say uh, where we might be a little off on a result. What happens is we realize, oh, after the fact, mm, we didn't have enough Republicans in our sample. Um, and so we use that as, as a learning sort of uh, tool. As a matter of fact, every poll that we ever do, we keep track of it, and then we go to the situation after the election, and we look and see how far off we were. Um, Right now, coming to mind, I don't have a specific uh, example where we were off by more than the margin of sampling error, but I'm sure there have been some. If you're involved in polling, you have to realize um, you have that margin of sampling error, so that's first and foremost. If your sample size is 400, your margin of sampling error is going to be plus or minus 5%. So there's, you know, a some big range. Yeah. This can be a, can be a large range, and in a, a very close election, you can have a situation where you know you got. You're still within the margin of error, but you're you're um, you're off by the mo- the amount that showed that the, your candidate was going to win, and he actually loses or she actually loses. Um, so you're always involved in that. But the other thing is, you're doing the survey. It might be two weeks out. It might be a week out. It's a competitive campaign. People change their mind. I mean, they just change their mind, or they don't show up to vote, or they do show up to vote in ways that you can't anticipate. So that's another reason why the horse race. Is good. It's interesting. You want to be as accurate as possible. But the real value to 
is is the understanding of the underlying dynamic because that's how you can get into understanding how to change public opinion or how to how to work with the public opinion is there once you understand it. You talked about going back and saying, oh, in this race, we didn't survey enough Republicans in this particular instance. Do you find that you're usually able to identify something you could have or should have done better to be closer? Yeah, that's a great question, because I believe that the only way you really the best way to learn is from your failures rather than your successes. For instance, in this last race, the June race, um, we initially believed that based upon other primaries that Republicans would have a huge turnout and Democrats would have less of a turnout, about 80 percent less turnout or 80 percent of the turnout that we had seen in 2008 and 2012 for Democrats and about 130 percent what we had seen in 2008 and 2012 for Republicans. So when we were doing our polls in, say, March for our candidates, we gave them two scenarios, kind of a normal scenario and then a Republican wave sort of scenario. Well, for my Republican candidates, that looked – that was helpful and they, 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 they like that, of course. As we all know, uh, in Indiana, Donald Trump took, knocked out the two remaining uh, Republican candidates. So when we got around to California, it was the Democrats that had the competitive race and the Republicans didn't. So that completely flipped and we had a situation where there was a huge – Democrat turnout relative to Republicans, something we've never seen before in in primary uh, elections. So that's something – the takeaway there is you know, try and uh, – you can't predict everything that's going to happen, but do your best to try and use the, the information at hand to make a good, uh, a, a good prediction. Of course, once we saw that happen, subsequent polls – once we started seeing this happen, in subsequent polls nearer closer to the election, we figured that and we, we baked that into our numbers. But the early numbers were way off because of that. There's this amazing scene in the the new Anthony Weiner documentary where he's on the phone with one of his consultants and they say, you're going to lose this thing and you're going to lose it bad and here's probably what your percentage is. And, you know, towards the end of a campaign, sometimes consultants will say things like, oh, it's going to be close. It's going to come down to, you know, turnout, uh, you know, publicly. Uh, and then like five minutes after the race is called, they're like, yeah, we didn't, we were doomed. Uh, we're, we're lucky to get by with that one. You're in the room. You're so good at this. Um <laughs> You're in the room and you're telling people this 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 one's over. You're you're out, buddy. What what's the what's been the kind of reaction from candidates when they when you give them the crystal ball and they know this thing they put a lot of time in to is is doomed. Well, some disbelieve the polling results. Um, there was a client in uh, 2014. Um, we did a series of polls for the gentleman and. At some point, I said, I don't think this is going to happen. I think there's a lot of smart people in this room, the consultants and everything, and they can work magic. They can work very hard and and do the right thing, and the polling is good, and the polling shows that you're not going to have a shot. And um, he decided to continue on and uh, even double down, I guess you could say. And um, sure enough, on election day, he he lost badly. Um and uh, he called me up the next day and said, "Well, I guess polling is right." <laughs> you know? And I, you know, I mean, that's I, I, I'm kind of surprised at those situations. Wow, I've never heard of a politician giving a concession call to a pollster, <laughs> <laughs> buddy. You were right. Yeah, you were right. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, folks pay me um, a significant amount of money 
to to understand the electorate and to to um, understand what public opinion is, and they're free to to go with it or not. Um, I've had uh, a surprising <laughs> number of uh, clients. I wouldn't say ignore, but kind of understand the the numbers and then choose to do something different from what I would expect them to do. And uh, it's a free country. You can do that. You sure can. And it sure is. John needs it. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, right. If you took a poll of just yourself, a one-person poll, what would that poll reveal was your favorite thing that happened this week? I'm going to go back to something we talked about with John, which is the Anthony Weiner documentary, Weiner. I uh, watched that very recently, and I've been thinking about it a lot ever since because it's an inside view of a complete disaster of a campaign um, and un- an unfortunate uh, precursor and preview of the separation uh, of of Mr. Weiner from his, his wife, Uma Abedin. An aide to Hillary Clinton, um, and you can just just watching her go through this miserable experience, uh, having her campaign, uh, having her husband campaign for mayor of New York. You, you just see just just uh, just despair, really, or you feel it anyway. It's just a it's it's quite a scene. It shows, yeah, it's quite a scene, and it's just like what a soldier she is. So I saw this. Um, I saw the documentary before the latest. Wiener news came out. Um, and even then, just like what a soldier she is, all that she's been through. And she's still just this composed goddess um, who's trying as hard as she can to help her husband. And it doesn't look fun. But there, you know, it was in, it, it's not only a behind the scenes look at a, a campaign in disarray, but there are these moments where uh, Wiener is just a, he's a he's a political genius at times. Absolutely, like, he's just electric. He he enters this lion's den of opposition to him. He gets the question like, "You're a jerk. Why should we trust you?" And he gives a beautiful, beautiful answer. And it's just like a, it's electrifying. He gives this great answer for his campaign and why it matters and why running for office matters and why he's doing it. And why New York needs him. And then clearly, very few people in New York agree with him. But it's just it's just the dichotomy of it's astounding. Yeah, that's great. That's a great favorite thing. So my favorite thing this week is both a favorite thing and also a least favorite thing. And that is the return of football, particularly college football. So as I mentioned, I am a USC fan, which of the last few years has been a little rough. Mm-hmm. Um but I like inherited these terrible traits from my dad and my brother where like I cared very, very deeply about my team and about um, Oregon, and it's actually agonizing. Like, I don't enjoy football anymore. It's, like, only a relief when my team wins, and it's just, like, agony the rest of the time. Especially that opener there against Alabama, I don't want to talk about it. No, but Um, the opener against Alabama, that was probably particular agony. I I don't want to talk about it, though. So, um, you know, we've got PolitiFest coming up, and um, I was recently delighted because uh, I found out USC is playing on Friday that week, which means I can watch the game. And also, I don't have to worry about, you know, not having my favorite game day shirt on um, at PolitiFest because I'll be wearing a VOSD t-shirt and rocking it. If you would lose again like you did to Alabama, would uh, (laughs) would you be a little despondent on Saturday? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like avoid the internet and people who want to talk about the game. Um, Scott Lewis would probably want to talk about the game because they're pay- playing Utah. So, you know, maybe him and I will be beefing at PolitiFest. You should probably come and find out. Definitely. You should come. It's on the 24th of September. It's, it's, at, San- up. it's at San Diego State. You should come. Yeah, it's going to be rad. Everybody yeah. should come. That's my favorite thing for the next podcast already. Excellent. And we'll see you then. Bye.